everyone and welcome to the Shining Mind podcast. I'm Dr. Selena B. I'm, I'm your host and I'm a neuroscientist. I just love that intro. Um, my two producers, Demi and Sasha, came up with that concept of wouldn't it be great if we owned the brain and the brain didn't own us. So in today's episode, it's one of my lectures. It's a lecture I gave to some beautiful young academic women in science that were struggling because they're at that phase where they wanted to get promoted or they want to move on, but they were also wanting, also having a family and just starting to get really overwhelmed and trying to think about making decisions where they want to quit. And that's the last thing we need. We need these young academic minds. So the lecture in today's episode is the lecture, the first lecture I gave to these young women. I went on to mentor these young women for a year um, using a kind of a social media platform. It's so exciting because each of those women went on to get promoted. One even became a group leader. They won very amazing fellowships. And that just warms my heart and makes me so happy to be here with this podcast. So I hope you get something from it and please enjoy. So in 19, uh, I think I finished my PhD in 1995-ish and I was doing a postdoc at the John Curtin School in Canberra and was sitting in a room like an auditorium and there were two professors that were women in that room. The rest of us were kind of young, like yourself, trying to get ahead or not even think about a career, you're just there because you love science or whatever. And I remember the moment, uh, like yesterday, uh, a guy stood up, he was a senior guy, and he stood there and he said, we all know that there's a locker room that exists. This is in 1997. Uh, you think it would have changed, wouldn't you? No. Uh, anyway, and he said, we all know that there's a locker room that exists. And so what we need to do to change, to make things better for women, so I'm a young postdoc sitting in the audience, is to create a senior position for women that only women can apply for, that uh, they've got to be highly qualified, of course, and they can apply for it. And the only two people in that room that shot down that proposal in front of all of us were the women in the room. And that really shocked me to my core, because I, I don't know if I had a child by that stage, not quite, maybe close. And at that point, I said to myself, oh my goodness, this is terrible. If I ever get into that position, I will never be pulling the drawbridge up behind me. I will be putting the drawbridge down and bringing as many women as I can with me. And it's not that I'm a feminist or a sexist person. It's just that the truth is that if we don't help each other, instead of competing against each other, which is in our genetics, um, we're not going to get very far. Because men do want to help us, um, just to let you know. It's women that are actually stopping, in some sense, some of, some of it. So. My gift to you today is, and my continual gift is, I'm very lucky and fortunate that I kept going. I said to myself, I'm not learning to play golf. I'm going to have a family, like every other man in this room. Why shouldn't I have a family and have a career like everyone else? It just seemed really unfair to me as a young person who'd done my PhD and got to university and all the rest. Why should I have my thing? Let me tell you, it was not easy <laughs> um, because that yearly publication cycle, winning the grants, traveling the world, having little kids. I started at UCSF with a four-year-old and a four-month-old baby in a new lab um, from Australia to the US. And I'm not going to say I had a 
Well, that's because you had a house husband. No, I did not. Um, but anyway, so what I'm here to tell you is just keep going. Please do not give up because the women behind you need you. You are role models. And my aim is to be a role model for you today and hope that you will keep up the fight because without you in the fight, without women there getting higher positions, supporting other women, and for women to see that you can do it, this is critical. So that's why I said yes to Tracy immediately and I mentored three amazing, young, beautiful academic women last year. And even if I can only make a 5% difference in your life, that's enough for me right now instead of trying to change everyone's life. Um, so what I'm giving to you today is why does this matter? Why does stress on the brain matter for your success? Because the truth is, last night at 2 a.m., my son had an emergency surgery um, for an appendix. So, you know, life keeps happening and you can't just give up because of all the stress that keeps coming your way. And so as a neuroscientist studying the brain for 25 years, I had an epiphany uh, kind of when you have these new uh, research ideas that come to you. Uh, it's like a crystallization moment. And for me, that was three years ago, sitting in my lab at the Translational Research Institute, when I've been trying to develop drugs that target different aspects of the brain to treat mental health problems. And then all of a sudden, I realized that I was on the, kind of on the wrong path. And if people understood how their brain worked and could train it, it would make a huge difference. And it's called, your brain is your business. And taking care of your brain is your business. And basically, stress is the number one thing. If it's not taken care of on a daily basis by you, then the brain takes care of it for you. And I want to share with you all my insights and research in this area. And my aim is not to give you more information, because you've heard many of these things before. It's like, how do you apply that to your daily life? Because most people think, oh my god, I've already got enough to do. You're going to tell me to do this now as well. And the brain does like to stay in the habits that we've trained it for, but equally with the daily training, it will move you in a new direction. So that's my aim. I'll try and make it as interactive as possible and that you get a lot away, you can take a lot away from this. But really the key for the change is the daily practice that follows today. And that's why I now have a coaching, mentoring type of uh, thing that uh, is attached to this because I really like to see people apply the knowledge so, let's start. When you woke up this morning, is it working? <laughs> oh dear. Oh, good. Okay, so when you woke up this morning, is this how you felt about your life? That you have the most amazing life. You can't wait for today to start, right? Like, wow, I live in Australia, in Brisbane, at QUT. I have all the amazing opportunities. Here I am, a woman, being able to go to university. You know, the previous generation, they couldn't even work. Not quite, but close. And the previous generation before that, as women, uh, they did physics at uni, but then they were allowed to be a teacher until they met that man, and then they had to stop. So to give you an idea of where we are in the generational cycle. So I feel very grateful because I, here I am, a woman, and had kids, and I have a career, which is really quite a miraculous thing in the last 100 years. But what you find is, was it more like this? Um, <laughs> the battery's in. Uh, <laughs> I kind of need the slide. But anyway, or is it more like you felt really stressed out? That, oh my God, how am I going to get the kids to school? How am I, God, now I've got to go to a presentation at 12 o'clock and what? I'm just going to sit there, more information. And what are they making me do? I already have enough to do. 
Um, my partner, why can't he help me get the lunches ready for the kids to go to school? And oh my God, the commute, and how am I going to pay my bills this week, etc. right? So these are all the things that are actively taking place in our lives every day. So in my talks that I give around the world, um, just to let you know, 90% of my audience feel like this, no matter where I am. No matter if I'm in an organisation like Genentech that has all the money in the world to do their research. People still feel like this, right? And even if we're living in a really abundant society, this is what's really going on for the majority of people. And so I ask you this question, do you actually know what's happening inside your brain when you're feeling like this? Like which part of the brain's operating, making you do this? Right? Most of the answers are no. And so I've been trying to raise money, um, building an app, etc. And I'd say to the CEO of the, these venture capital firms in the end, because I was like really kind of shocked how little we've done at teaching people about how their brain works. And uh, he looked at me and said no. And I said, well, that's what I'm about. You should know. You should know why you're stressed out and what's happening and how to stop it, because it has a big impact. It ends up putting a big footprint in your brain and then into your body. And so I want you to stand up this second and put your hands on your hips and push your shoulders back. And you've probably seen this TED talk, it's by Amy Cuddy, she does power research from Harvard, but do you know what's happening inside your brain to immediately make you feel a little bit better? So this is uh, from the dominant, you can sit down now for a second, I hope you did feel a little bit better. Take a deep breath. Yeah, so basically what that is is the high power position. So you're taking the, so you're going to do this in all these meetings when you're trying to get promoted, by the way. Um, you're pushing your shoulders back. It's the dominant position. If you look at anyone that's like a CEO or the manager, you notice how they're sitting versus when you're going in to have your PPR and you're like this. Oh my God, what are they going to find is wrong with what I've done? Right? So immediately what your brain's doing when you take on that position alone is it increases cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone, increases noradrenaline. So immediately this part of your brain, which I'm going to teach you all about today, is activated. When you're taking on the high power position, the opposite takes place. So Amy Cuddy did power research. She took the bloods from all the people in powerful positions versus people in low power positions. And then she measured cortisol and testosterone. Um, and I just had you do that so you could feel it. <laughs> Will I just say next slide? No. Um, anyway, so what I want to show you here, this is cortisol. So when you immediately took on that high power position, and especially if you hold it for two minutes, the amount of cortisol goes down, which is your stress hormone, and the amount of testosterone goes up, which is your power hormone. So that's immediately why you feel more confident and have more presence. So why not do that every day to start your day? Try it in the mirror, you're there brushing your teeth. Um, as an example of how you can do a little quick, what I call biohack into biochemistry of your brain and make a difference. Uh, next slide, please. I think I have to do that. So put this up on your desk at work and do the Wonder Woman pose. So when someone's being really kind of annoying to you or someone that you're working with, the number one stress factor in the world is the people you're working with. That's reported stress in the, in the National Health Stress Survey that was done last year. The number one is not money, when money comes in, there's like 15 of them, but the number one thing is people you're working with is driving people crazy. 
And I think it, and I think that's kind of been a little bit on the increase as we've moved into the knowledge economy, where people are kind of putting out information that your job's not secure or all of these things, and things that you're expected to do now, including like yesterday I did corporate training for travel, like now I'm a travel agent too, um, makes you really stressed. And the thing about the brain is it loves stress. And it locks onto that more than it locks onto the opposite because just the way the brain evolved over really a long period of time. And why is that? And it's because basically the job of the brain is to keep you alive and safe. So in ancient times, that meant not getting eaten, you know, by a dinosaur or other things. You know, it's not being eaten by somebody. And so immediately the brain in milliseconds, this part of the brain is always sensing our environment to keep us safe. But in our modern world, we're not really faced with the same physical threats that we were even, you know, probably a hundred years ago. But our brain hasn't evolved sufficiently to overcome those, what I call the major design flaw feature of the brain. Like what I had you do in that one second was to tap into the superpower of your brain and stop it. Stop that stupid part of the brain going off in that millisecond and giving it the pause that it needs to get the executive part of the brain functioning. And that's what this is all about. Because, and you say to me, oh, but I'm not stressed, I'm okay, I can handle anything. That was me too, and that's how I got really fat and unhealthy, which I'm gonna share with you. But basically, what we now know is that low levels of chronic stress, that's where you get little bits of cortisol adding up over time, are actually affecting the way your brain's developing and the way those synapses are actually communicating with each other. And the top part of your brain, which is where you do your decision making, and it's where you do impulse control. What do I mean by that? That's your ability to top, stop having the third donut because it tastes so good. That's called impulse control. Or when you're going to the fridge after work from a really stressful day and you go for the wine, you think, I'll just have one glass of wine, I'm going to feel really good and then next minute it's two glasses and then half a bottle of wine or et cetera, et cetera. That sits in the top part of your brain. That particular part of the brain is incredibly exquisitely sensitive to stress and particularly cortisol, hormones and noradrenaline. So what does the brain do? Because it's a massive, amazing learning machine. It is completely wired to something to prevent that from keeping going. And that's why it makes you reach for sugar. Um, some people tell me it's a tub of ice cream between 7 and 10 o'clock at night. For some people it's beer or wine or whatever it is that we do. And then what that does over time, it has a, and this is what I love about where neuroscience is now, we can actually pull the brain out using brain imaging technology and show you this for the first time. This little lumpy jelly thing inside your brain, we can show you what it looks like. We can show you that all these things are changing the brain with time. And that's why I'm so passionate to come out and teach you this. And, and anyone that will listen to me, basically. Um, and what happens over time, here's a normal brain. What we're looking at in red here is a dopamine receptor. The dopamine receptor is the one, when you have that hit of chocolate, and you, oh, if you like chocolate, some people, you know, whatever it is, immediately dopamine goes up, binds to dopamine D2 receptors in the reward center of your brain. If, if this continues over a really long period of time and the amount that you're having escalates, then those receptors, see the red is now not there as much. So those signals are going down. So what does that mean? Well, one piece of chocolate doesn't quite do it the same way as now three does because you need more to get the dopamine receptors activated. 
This is very much an oversimplistic representation. It's a circuitry and there's multiple receptors, but this is definitely one that drives a lot of um, our behavior. And the interesting thing, and uh, we've been doing work on sugar addiction, and I'll share a little bit with you about that. And what you'll see is the brain, this is what a normal brain looks like. Um, and, I, and you can say, what's a normal brain? I can't answer that question. <laughs> But you know, people that haven't had a lot of food over a really long period of time, or sugar, or alcohol, etc. What what Nora Volker showed at the National Institutes of Alcohol and Drug Abuse uh, was that those receptors are going down in exactly the same way that they're going down for long-term alcohol use, smoking, uh, overeating, etc., and from cocaine. So basically, these things are changing the brain biochemistry. So this is why um, stress and sugar and alcohol are changing your brain. And, and, what, and it's really quite phenomenal um, just what the changes are taking place because we're now mapping those changes and mapping all of the synaptic changes that are taking place in those brains. So what I've done in this book is to really try and simplify the information and make it colorful and use really easy language to understand so that people can understand a little tiny bit about what's happening in the brain when these things are taking place. So what I like to call it is, I call this the brain scales of justice. On one side is stress and on the other side is reward. And if you don't handle the stress, the brain handles it for you by helping you seek the rewards it needs to stop the toxic effects from stress chemicals. Because stress chemicals kill the brain. Brain doesn't want to be killed, it wants to keep you alive. So therefore it's driving all these behaviors. And then you'll see that if you just stop the balance and improve the stress yourself rather than the brain doing it for you, next minute you know you can more easily change those rewards. And that's what this is all about, is how do we get the brain to stop reacting to stress for one second and now the brain will respond to stress. And it sounds way too simple, but it is actually hard to implement. But once you understand and have the knowledge of what's happening inside your own brain, then that's where the change really takes place. Oh, next slide, please. Um, so we now know too that um, we all don't exercise enough and we're not moving our bodies. We've become much more sedentary over the last number of years. And we now know our brains need a lot of exercise to keep the blood flow, oxygen, and all of these things um, happening at the same time. And as we, if, I don't know if you ever noticed for yourself that if you sit for a certain period of time, it's very hard to get moving again. Why? Why is that? Well, let me give you an extreme example of someone with Parkinson's disease where they have a deficit in dopamine signaling. They have trouble initiating movement. And so the TV people have really worked this out and 10 minutes before the next show starts, they start playing the next show to get you motivated to stay there. You go there to watch 30 minutes of something that you're really excited to see. Next minute you're there for four hours seeing like all this stuff you didn't want to see. And that's because it's very hard once you're sitting to get going again. Because as you sit, the longer you sit, the harder it is to get going again because dopamine signals are going down. Because we are animals that need to move a lot. And so that's the, the, the other thing that's happening inside the brain as we sit for longer and longer. Next slide, please. Next slide. Um, so I decided to... I, it's a very long story, I don't have time to tell you. And you say to me, why did you write a book about how your brain made you fat and unhealthy? Well, because when I first came out of my lab to teach people about why they need a brain fitness coach, 
someone there to guide them like they need for a physical trainer for their body. Everyone looked at me like I was absolutely crazy and said to me, I don't need a brain fitness coach. I barely have a physical trainer. Why would I want a brain fitness coach? Well, when you understand the power of brain plasticity and the, the need for the brain to be activated all the time, then you understand that it will be the thing that everyone will have in the next 10 or 15 years, um, unfortunately a little bit ahead of time. So what I noticed was people really cared about how they looked. And so basically, if you don't train your brain, that go, the stress goes straight into your body. And so basically that stress goes into the places that are really hard to move, which is the muffin top and the jelly thighs. And can I have the next slide, please? And this is what exactly happened to me as a neuroscientist, and you think I would know better. You can also change your hair colour as well. <laughs> Not just your brain and your body. Um, so this was me at UCSF um, probably about seven or eight years ago. And basically, I had stopped exercising. I was working to 10 to 12 hours a day. Uh, I would be, this is me with all the kids, um, not, they're not all mine, <laughs> I'd be wondering. Um, but what had happened was, uh, my, uh, basically, my body caved in. And I moved back, I, got, I came back to Brisbane in 2011, 2012, and I noticed everyone was running here around the rivers and started exercising. I started doing triathlons and marathons and, and all of this thing because I thought that's how I can assimilate back. So I had left here 20 years ago. So coming back was hard because I'd been living around in other places and you think it, coming home would be easy, but it's actually not. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'll just do what other people are doing. And so I started doing that and I've been, started, I've been doing alcohol addiction and sugar addiction research for 25 years. I've been trying to find a solution for mental health problems, specifically schizophrenia. And then I started to notice one little thing. Like I did feel really ill because I had definitely put on a lot of weight without noticing it. My clothes were going up in size, but I didn't pay any attention. Yeah, I just didn't. I had two little kids. I'd go to work, I'd come home, I'd put them to bed, I'd go back to my desk to write the grants and the papers, you know, to keep everything going. And my health had, gave, had given in. And I remember one day a guy that I worked with at UCSF, we went to lunch together. He's Italian, he really cares about what he looks like. And he sat with me and I ate my lunch and afterwards he looked at me and said, God, you can eat a lot. And I went, oh, that's a bit mean. <laughs> and then what happened was, I didn't even, I never felt full from eating, ever, never. Ever. And, and I thought that's really strange for someone that's not very tall to be able to keep eating all that food and then I have to actually physically stop myself from eating. And that's how I was getting bigger plus not moving and not exercising. And my mother called me when I was 40 and she said to me, you're 40 now, are you exercising? And I looked at her and I screamed at her, you know, you know. I said, when? At three o'clock in the morning after I put the kids to bed or before I get them up? When are you expecting me to go and exercise? You know, I can barely make it to work and get the kids to, you know, wherever they've got to go and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then unfortunately my mother was right, which I hate to admit, but uh, she really was right. And so I started exercising and I moved back. But the interesting thing that I discovered was I couldn't lose weight still in my 40s and now I'm in my 50s. Um, with hormones and all the rest coming to the mix. And I thought, wow, this is horrible. It's too late for me. I'm done for, you know. And, um, but then we were studying alcohol addiction and as a control experiment, we were running sugar experiments. And 
lo and behold, my collaborator from Stanford called me when I was back here and she said, you won't believe this, Selena, but those control experiments are changing the brain in exactly the same way that alcohol is changing the brain. And I just went, oh my God, thank God we had another control experiment in there. Otherwise, that would be a total waste of time, all that work that we were funded to do because um, we had you know, other animals doing other things. So what we've discovered, we've since published, is that sugar is actually as bad as alcohol and, and it changes the prefrontal cortex synapses, it takes them down. It activates the amygdala, which is the stress part of your brain, in the same way that alcohol does. This is overconsumption. I'm not talking about a teaspoon of sugar with a cup of coffee. I'm talking about having a lot of sugar over a long period of time. And then what we've discovered was that it actually activates nicotinic receptors in the brain, which is the most addictive drug in the world, nicotine. So sugar is, and we, think of how many kids are taking a lot of sugar right now. Then it affects your ability to learn. And then the second thing is sugar goes straight into your body, into the visceral fat cells. So these are the fat cells that aren't meant to get a lot of energy. These are the ones that go here. And, uh, and that's how the energy gets stored. And to get rid of that, when you're my age, is really hard. And so you have to exercise really hard to get rid of muffin top sugar-induced fat cells. And so when it became really clear to me exactly why I was struggling still to lose weight in my late 40s, even though I was running a marathon, everything changed for me because of all the research we're doing in the lab. And then this has since been replicated around the world. So that's why if you don't manage stress, stress gets into your brain and into your body. And if that's happening, it's very hard for us to go out in the world and then be confident in our career and to achieve all our goals because we're still locked up in just worrying about the little daily things, let alone being able to achieve our big career goals and our partner goals and our children goals and whatever those goals are for our life. It's really difficult when we're constantly stressed. Anyway, next slide, please. So that's my story. That's um, what it's all about. And these are the five principles that if you apply every day, completely can change and transform your life. Because what they're doing is they're actually training your brain to respond instead of react to stress. And I absolutely ask you to try it to see. You can do it today, you can do it tomorrow. And if you could just apply one of these biohacks on a daily basis with a goal in mind, whatever that goal is, whether it's to become level B or C or A or B or to get a permanent position or whatever it is, these are the things that will really make a difference. And, and you can ask uh, uh, the people that I was training last year, um, it's the coaching every day. You can hear the information, but applying it is the key for neuroplasticity. So by doing this every day, what you're doing is you're applying the principles of neuroplasticity. That is your ability of your brain to change forever. Um, next slide, and I'll go through quickly some of these ideas. But you need to understand how your brain works. There's three different parts to it, and we talked about how stress activates, I call it MIDI, meaning the emotional part of your brain. And that's because stress is wired to reward in that part of the brain. So the amygdala and the accumbens where reward sits are intimately wired together. And you're gonna say, how come the person next to me can do that so easily and be really confident and I can't? Well, that's because their brain's completely differently wired by stress for over a really long period of time. So the minute your brain develops, um, can we go to the next slide, please? 
Um, this is what I call um, meeting your emotional brain. Emotional brain meaning it's just the emotional part of the brain. We call it that. I don't really like that word because immediately people think it's soft and mushy and got nothing to do with executive senior performance. But I can guarantee you, if you have trained your emotional brain first, that's how you become the CEO. Because you are now able to resist temptation you have better impulse control and improved executive function. Because of this part of the brain is so old and has been wired for such a long period of time, it actually is intimately wired to executive function. It's the thing that controls it. It's the thing that controls your ability to achieve your goals, not just to think about them, to actually achieve them. Because when you're under constant stress, that part of the brain doesn't work. It's impossible to make the daily decisions the short-term daily decisions you need to make to achieve those long-term goals. And it's a brain mechanism. And everyone's brain is so different. It's been wired so differently. And by getting to know and understand your own first makes it so much easier to understand where the people that are really annoying you are coming from and what to do about that and how to, you know, not let it affect your life, for example. Next slide, please. Um, so this is the MIGI monster that most people can relate to going off in your brain. Um, I can relate to that um, very much today. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go and give a talk about stress on the brain. I am so stressed out right now. Um, and it's just natural. It's meant to be there. It's meant to make you worry and keep you safe. But it's just how much you let it happen to you and what you do about it that really matters. So the next slide, please. So I don't know if anyone has seen this video. Can anyone guess what's going on? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because so, so it turns and, and immediately jumps because uh, its brain is uh, totally worked out that it potentially is a snake, needs to get out of it. That uh, is in our brain. Not exactly the same because our brains evolved sufficiently differently in different lineages, but there's no doubt, and you can recognise it in yourself, that that's what our brain's really good at doing. And it's for a really good reason, because some of these things are dangerous and you need to escape from them. But, you know, not all your team workers are snakes, you know, but they can, <laughs> you know, can feel like that. Um, for sure. Anyway, next slide, please. And the bottom line is your brain, this part of your brain really is that old. And that's why, and it's the ancient brain, and, and that's why I call it the greatest design flaw feature of human brains that we still haven't controlled properly. It's a massive business for people, that's for sure. Um, we outsource it to every single person but ourselves. So we have everyone solving our brain issues but ourselves. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to uh, minimise suffering and all of these things. I totally understand 
the wiring and everything. But there was just one thing that kind of a little bit upset me and that was as a neuroscientist studying my own brain, going through all my own things, being able to train it, and I'm still a work in progress, um, but being able to train aspects of it that could transform my life where the traditional models that I'd worked in forever from a pharmacist and a medically trained and I've done everything, um, was shocking to me that those tools weren't available to the people. It was really shocking to me. So that's why I decided to try and build an app in the beginning, but that people don't really use apps properly or at all. And so then I went back to just start writing a book about just to raise awareness first, instead of trying to transform your life, just to raise awareness that just try it and see, can you tap into your ancient brain and tame it and then train it? So the next slide. Oh, you think it's working now? That's good. So as I alluded to early, why we end up making irrational decisions and choosing high caloric rewards as an example, lashing out at someone or running away, because when that part of the brain is activated in those milliseconds, like that cat jumping to the cucumber um, and, not and then realising later that it probably didn't need to, is because that part of the brain is tied to this part of the brain. Intimately, there's a, we study this neuronal connection, it's a circuit, and basically it's switched off straight away, so you don't have to think about 100 decisions. You immediately go to the either get out of here, punch someone's lights out, or freeze. They're the three main things that that part of the brain makes you do to keep you alive and safe. And, and we now have all the brain imaging to be able to show you this as well. And, and I'm not going to share with you all the data, but it, it's quite extensive and it's growing. And I'm really excited to see a massive, like some people say, our oh, brain imaging is just showing you what we already knew. And I said, well, there's aspects of that, but there's also the aspect where we can actually show you now your brain can change until the day you die if you train it. Under stress, it cannot do that. Under alcohol, it cannot do that. It's the opposite. Stress, alcohol, sugar, and all of those things are actually preventing the brain from reaching its potential. It just can't. It's called what we call negative neuroplasticity. What I'm trying to teach you is positive neuroplasticity. So as an example, you're going to say to me, I don't believe you. Okay, so let's do a working memory test. So what I'll have you do is I'm going to give you a set of numbers and then I'm going to give you a math problem and then you're going to turn to your neighbour and, and say that number in reverse. <laughs> People love this test. They especially love the word test. Okay, ready? Zero, five, two, three, eight, six, four, seven, nine. Ninety-nine plus four is? You can say it out to me. Okay, so now turn to your neighbour. Take a deep breath. Turn to your neighbour and see if you do the number in reverse. Okay, who, any volunteers? Anyone want to have a go? 
try, just try, it doesn't matter. Yeah, go for it. There's no, it's good to, tr you can just try, there's no right or wrong here. Not quite, starts with nine. Yep. Close. Okay, I'm going to give you a hint. Nine, seven, four. Does anyone get past that? Yeah, that's okay. It's totally normal. So ba basically what we did is we set up, so the working memory part of your brain sits in executive function, sits up here in the top part of your brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. And what working memory is, is your ability to hold these numbers in and manipulate them. And so when you're under stress, it's almost impossible to do that. Um, and, it, and that's why long-term, you know, I told you the synapses are starting to go down from stress. And that's because it shuts out your working memory. And working memory is a great indicator of executive function. So what I did when I said test, I immediately, your brain went into a spasm. Um, when I said, you're gonna turn to your neighbor and say it backwards, they're like, oh my God, they're gonna think I'm really dumb and you know, I'm at a university and, and then or it's like, why is she having me do this? I just came to listen to her give a talk, you know, get me out of here. Um, I wanna punch the lights out or you know, I'm just not gonna even try because I am hopeless at numbers, right? This is what all the things are going on. I mean, I do the same thing when you know, people throw that at me just from nowhere. So what was happening then was the ancient part of your brain immediately shut down your working memory. I have a few examples where I've had in audiences some people be able to do it. And they're the people that really do operate pretty solely in executive function. The emotional brain is pretty low down, <laughs> tamed, shall we say, or non-existent. Um, but anyway, so that's, a, I just want, I, everything I do is to try and get you to feel your brain. So when I first came out of my lab, I called it Brain Unlocked, because everyone said, oh, I have a lock, can you unlock my brain? I'm sitting there going over the same thing, I want to change my life and I just can't seem to, can you unlock my brain? I thought, fantastic, let's call it Brain Unlocked. And then I started doing that and I gave my first TED talk here on this stage, so this is beautiful memories for me in 2014 about that. And then what I discovered from that was that then I'd talk about that, everyone came up to me and said, my father really needs to see you, and so does my sister-in-law, and um, my friend, can they go and see you? And I'm like, well, let's just do you first, and then they'll see what you're doing, and then they'll want it, you know, and then you'll understand where they're coming from as well, because of mirror neurons, because people are copying your environment. So one thing from this talk, giving you some, like, superpower tips, is if you want to have a better environment at work, create one, because mirror neurons, people start copying you. If you go home, if you go to that team and start smiling at them, they might think that something's wrong, but, but, it's, it, but it really starts to have a feedback mechanism effect because they have to smile back. It's a reflex. Um, it just is a reflex from this part of the brain. It's called the mirror neurons. They're only discovered five years ago by an Italian neuroscientist, no, no, 10 years ago now, by an Italian neuroscientist. What he discovered was he's working with monkeys recording neurons here, and uh, he was looking at a monkey grab a banana, and this part of the brain would fire, which is where your motor cortex sits. That's the part of your brain that helps you walk and you know, guides some of these processes. And then just serendipitously, he went and reached for the banana, and the neurons went firing off in the monkey's brain. So that meant that that part of the brain is where what they call the mirror neurons, and they're still trying to work out the mechanism. But I just, 
ask you to try it. Smile at someone. Like now, just smile at each other. Like turn to each other and have a smile. See? You have to do it. It's not it's impossible to go when someone's smiling at you. And so just tr- these are little things, but they end up adding up. Um, trust me, just try it. Now, some people are highly resistant to any of this because they know better, this is all crap, um, they don't need it, etc., uh, etc. Et and I'm so stressed out, none of this is going to help me, I need to do blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm talking about and who you're dealing with. Uh, and people really just love being the way they are and just let me be kind of thing. I haven't got time to tell you all about this research, but this has, for me, changed my whole life in terms of my research lab, um, my own life, and then me trying to search for 30 years to help people with schizophrenia uh, kind of got blown apart when I discovered all these studies that had started 25 years ago. And that is adverse childhood experiences, why the brain? So what I mean by that is, and this work had been done over a long period of time, very passionate about it, because that's why we have people in jail and all of these other things. When you really understand it, it's frightening, but basically why you might be struggling versus your neighbour that seems to have everything going for them is because where your brain started from, I call it the genetic lottery in life. Uh, We don't know where we're going to be born. We don't know what environment we're going to be born into. We don't know what experiences our brain are going to receive. We have no control over that. And uh, when you understand that, it makes you very compassionate to nearly every brain you see, um, which is both good and bad. (laughs) But anyway, so just let you know, when, when you start to practice some of these tools, just recognize that your brain is different to someone else's and how your ancient brain has been wired by a certain level of stress that happened between the ages of zero and three and 10 and 14 can wire your ancient brain to be more reactive to stress or negative things than someone else's brain that grew up what I call the Mozart environment versus you know the trumpet environment. When you have a Mozart environment that your brain's growing up in, all the pieces come together and they play really nicely with each other. When you grow up what I call the trumpet environment, where the ancient brain's just going off the whole time and the executive brain's not being trained, then that's the brain that ends up happening over a long period of time. And why zero and three and 10 and 14? Well, that's the period of brain development. It's called uh, where the neuroplasticity switches are totally turned on. So anything that's happening to those brains during those two periods of time gets massively wired into the brain. So now at our, at my age, I have to turn those switches on to, to change my brain. I've got to actively turn those switches on. Whereas anything that happened to me between 0 and 3 and 10 and 14, it was just wiring itself in. That's why you end up with a teenage brain. That's why massive things happen to brains from 0 to 3 where it's sitting up and talking and really, really expanding and growing. So just to let you know that that genetics, your starting point, and the epigenetics is wiring your brain, has wired your brain, and it's different. So I call it the Mozart versus the trumpet brain, but now the the fantastic news for you all today to take away, your brain's really plastic and it can change forever. Whoever told you at 25 you can't teach a dog new tricks is totally wrong. And the practice, it's the hardest part of the daily practice, and we have the brain imaging technology to support and back this up now. That's why you'll see people doing triathlons at 105. They've just opened the age category for a woman. She's doing one at 105. Um, the oldest living woman, Jean-Marie Francie in France, is uh, 120. 
and uh, normally we're studying what they eat and their physical exercise and their connections, but not one person has added into that equation if you go into Wikipedia, what activities are they doing? Well, she took up fencing in her 80s, learnt a new language in her 90s. She didn't cut down in her life, she grew her life. And so what you'll find is we've kind of taught people that at 60 you retire, you know, at 70 you do this, and so people follow those pathways and the brain follows along with you. So as a woman in science and engineering and technology or whatever you're doing at QUT, do not believe what people are telling you about being a woman. Like someone wrote to me the other day and said, oh, I'll, I'll help you get talks and I'll, you have to do them for free and then you, no, if I sign you up to do a talk, then I, you'll have to pay me for that. And so I said to her, I don't know a single man that would do all of, all of this information and 25 years of expertise for free. We have to start changing the way we're thinking. You know, it's, it's just the way we think and we're being, well, this is, I'm telling you my personal story. You know, I was told that you marry someone rich and, uh, or whatever it is. Um, as a woman, you're not meant to have a career at some level. You, we have to change the way we think about all of that. You know, the world has really massively changed. So neuroplasticity means that if you don't not do these things every day, like a small thing every day, every day for 21 days, the little proteins in those synapses that I showed you, they're coming in, they try and talk to each other. So you know what it's like for the first seven days, you're really enthusiastic and you're excited, I'm gonna exercise, this is it, this is the time, I'm going to really do it this time. And then you're going, you're going, you're going, and then by about 14 days to about 20 days, it's just like, oh my, God, um, I will go tomorrow, you know, and then slowly it kind of fades away for any kind of new habit that you're trying to form. And that's because those synapses, they were just about to talk to each other. It takes all these proteins coming out into the, you know, you've got to create all these new proteins, and then these little channels have to talk to each other, and then they've got to get hardwired with each other. And so it's the constant repetitive practice that drives the brain change. And it's the hardest thing for all of us to do. If we're not feeling confident in ourselves, we have to practice being confident. And some of these biohacks will help you do that. And then that's how you start to transform your brain, your body, and then your life. It's the constant small things that you do every day. It's not the big thing. It's not when you get your PhD that life's gonna change for you. It's not when you find the right partner or when you get rich that life will change for you because you can actually do it right now. And that's what I love about it. And you can do it at any age, too. <laughs> um, I've got many examples of this with the guy in England who was 89, he was sick of his decrepit old body and he took up bodybuilding and now he just won the world record for the 200 meter sprint. Um, and he looks amazing. He was really, you know, he's 93 now or something like that. So basically the bottom line is that when you, when you, everything you're doing is being wired into your brain. Just think of when you start, when you learnt to drive and what it was like for the first time when you had your hands at 10 to 2 and you're like, oh God, have I got the, my, my foot on the right pedal? How am I going to sh shift? Do you remember those, that thinking, what it feels like for the first time? And now you just drive everywhere. In fact, your brain is so tuned into the automated, automatic behaviour that you can get somewhere and not even know how you got there. Do you know that feeling? Like, how did I get here? Oh, well, you know, because your brain's just doing it for you. So what's happening inside your brain when you're learning those new things for the first time, it feels really scary, really, really hard. 
and that goes into one part of the brain. And then as soon as you've learnt those um, kind of sequence of behaviours, those steps, it gets put into a little shell and then goes into another part of your brain so it's just automatically pulled out. It's called the lateral striatum. So we have the medial and we have the lateral. So therefore, why we have to be really careful about those behaviours we're setting up, they become automatic responses. And why is it so hard to change our automatic responses to things is because of that. So that when we're retraining things that we want to retrain, that's what we're doing. So when we're doing the daily practices, changing our stress reactions, that's what we're doing. And then what happens when those, because the stresses don't change in life, they actually amplify, you'll never have the right situation always. You know, there'll be always someone throwing a bombshell in there somewhere, um, you know, like, knowledge economy, that's a bit of a bombshell, you know, it's been going on for a while, but you know, it's, it's here, that kind of thing. So, but if we can train our brain to handle it, in a and, and that we're teaching our brain to handle it by choosing a healthier option, that's the, what we, that's the goal. That's the goal, and that, that way we're actually retraining our brain to be stronger, to be, you know, hear, hear the words resilience, that's what brain resilience is. That's what it is. And it's a molecular brain mechanism. It's brain plumbing. And we're all able to do this. What I was trying to get at, it's, not, it's easier for some than for others, basically, because of how their brain was wired in the beginning. And it's not to blame or anything. It's just the way it is. It's just the way the brain works. Now, the big thing why we focus on stress is because stress keeps the brain in that loop. So the key is to actually become aware of when you're having a mini moment. I was training someone and basically this is the words that they're happy to share with their friends. Just having a mini moment and then stopping it. That's how, because it's very hard to know how you even react to stress because it's milliseconds. You saw the cat to the, to the uh, cucumber versus the snake. It's happened before you've even been aware of it. And I've talked about why that is, why we have them, it keeps you safe and alive. And the key is, do you actually know what you do, whether you're having them, that kind of thing. So we've been building an app uh, as part of the science and engineering faculty technology to help people start to do that. As I alluded to, we want the, we're trying to keep our circuitry going up to the prefrontal cortex rather than down into our body and having our heart rate increase, our breathing stop. So one thing to remember is when you're thinking about your boss being really annoying and you get home you really want a beer, if it's not your boss or someone at work, this is the number one thing that you hear um, when you go home or you're with your friends, this is what they're talking about. Just remember that instead of saying I need a beer or have you know, an extra donut, just remember to think that I need to go outside as soon as I get home and just try that. And then always remember that the moral of the story is your boss is a cucumber. So the one thing that happens when I leave my talk, when people leave, my, this is the one thing they remember, the power pose and looking at their boss like a cucumber instead of a snake. <laughs> if I can make you do that, I've done 1% of my job. So the bottom line is, is what we've got to do is train the monster to become koala. And this is my Australian contribution to the book. The whole concept here and the first element is to teach your brain how to respond and not react to stress. And, uh, and when you do that, it's really quite powerful. You'd be really surprised just how wonderful this is for your life.
So the idea here was that, see the little monster with, the, with these going off? That's actually wiring. So if you don't do this, it's becoming really, really hardwired into the brain. But when you train it every day to stop those things, keep wiring in, it becomes less wired and becomes much calmer. This central part of the brain is where it sits for you and your life. And by training that first, then you can do the rest. We just did that one. And, in the, and one thing that uh, we, we discovered is that tracing really works. And Tracy mentioned tracing because um, she's been to my talks before. And basically what this is, is if you're having a hard time just you know, putting your shoulders back, taking a deep breath, and you hear about mindfulness and all of these things that you can do, yoga, all fantastic. But just doing the deep breathing sometimes is helpful, but sometimes you need to take action because the monster is just outrageous. Um, tracing, where's my tracing? This is an action you can do because it actually activates your fine motor neurons in your fingers. The fine motor neurons go to the motor cortex where we mentioned mirror neurons, and they get activated. And if you do this just for a couple of minutes and do it slowly and precisely, just see if you've actually being able to pause Miggy for a second. That's all. And just try it and see. Uh, the last prin two principles are other things you can do to manage stress through better eating, because sugar activates and alcohol activate the brain, they activate Miggy, they make it even worse, and they also make you fatter. So basically, one thing we know is if the first thing to try is just take out one thing of sugar. Sugar basically activates the brain and makes you feel empty, it, like makes you feel like you want to keep eating. So we now show in the brain, the particular part of the brain, which is the reward center of the brain, sugar activates that part of the brain. So that's why when you eat, you want to keep eating and you never feel full after you're eating. Just, just notice that, just take out one piece of sugar or alcohol. Alcohol's doing exactly the same thing and that's why when you drink a lot you end up more stressed because it's activating the emotional part of the brain. And so first of all then work out what you do when you're stressed. Do you go home and want to have the third and fourth glass of wine? Do you have chocolate? A lot of people like you know chocolate or uh, chips and alcohol etc. And when you're young it doesn't matter, it's only when you get to my age and old and then hit menopause as well that um, things really go into your body. Um, this is why diets don't work. We have unequivocal evidence over a long period of time that diets don't work. They actually make people fatter in the end because they're setting up the brain for deprivation. And I think this point is absolutely critical that we have this in the public domain because people are spending an absolute fortune on many, many diets. And these are some of the results from my lab demonstrating just so you can see how sugar actually and like alcohol changes the brain. So these are communication channels in your brain and this is what's happening when you've had overconsumption of sugar. See how there's less of these little dots here? That means there's less, the brain is not um, being able to communicate with, it, with itself very well. These were absolutely shocking findings for us because we were using these uh, animals drinking sugar as control experiments for the alcohol <laughs> and to see our, so that's why sugar is addictive it activates exactly the same pathways that alcohol does in the brain and nicotine and then this is sugar how it meets your fat cells or my fat cells in the visceral fat cells not the skin fat cells 
And basically the energy from sugar, which is fructose, not glucose, but the fructose component of sugar, goes into these cells that, that and then they, these cells actually multiply. And then you can, you can suck up the energy source through exercise that needs a certain intensity of exercise to do that. And then they still never go away. They're still waiting to be filled with energy again. They shrink, but they never go away. And this is what the brain does. The brain actually doesn't care where it gets its rewards from. It just doesn't care. So if you train the brain to choose healthier options, the brain will take you there with training instead of taking it to sugar or alcohol or all these other things or lashing out at people. Uh, the other one is movement. We now know that we sit way too much, uh, that we don't move our bodies enough. And to actually get rid of uh, stress, we actually need a certain level of intensity of exercise. So it's either running or whatever you're doing, but it needs to have cardiovascular activity associated with it because we now know um, that you actually get new brain cells and new hair cells and new skin cells and new heart cells. So research out of Finland has, has actually been studying people that had heart failure in their 70s. And they, had, they prescribed them, it's actually worked at the University of Queensland as well, they prescribed them a certain level of uh, activity, uh, intense activity. These are people with heart failure. And they imaged their hearts and showed new heart cells forming from that activity. Isn't that amazing? I just think that's like fantastic. So if you want to break into brain plasticity, just try running or try some kind of level of intense. You know how it really just immediately drops that cortisol and that feelings of stress, doesn't it? If you can start your day just by walking outside in nature or, or, go, or you know, increasing your exercise, just notice how much less stress you'll feel at work during that day. It's just a beautiful way to start the day. And so what we're doing here is the smallest little things you're doing every day that are going to change your brain and change your body and then transform your life and allow you to reach all of those goals. And the key is to actually do it every day and that's the hardest part. And this is, but we have to get stress off our brain. We have to be able to train our brain away from stress because stress has such a potent impact. Aging is stressful. Um, getting any kind of illness is stressful, dealing with people is stressful. We need to control it so the brain doesn't control it for us. It's just what it does. So these are the, the in summary, these are the five steps that I'd, I'd love you to try. And that is to, first of all, work out your own brain. Do you know when you're stressed? Do you know when you're having a miggy moment? Do you know what you do when, after you have one? Uh, like, have you, are you aware of that? Um, if that's the first step, really. And when you start to get more and more awareness of that, and you get to see where your brain's coming from, why it's doing what it does, it's the thing that then changes everything for you because then you see everyone else's brain. And then you start to get into their shoes and you start to recognise, oh my God, they're doing the same thing that I'm doing. And then we have more compassion for the people around us, which then allows us to have better environments that we're in. And what we're doing is training the executive function part of our brain to reduce impulse, to improve our impulse control, help us make better short-term decisions, but that's what helps us reach our goals because it's the, it's the microsecond, millisecond reactions we're having that allow us to make the short-term decisions that then allow us to reach our goals. So as an example, I want to lose weight as, uh, as, as one example. So I, I learned that if I sit all day at work, 
all that marathon training I was doing was worthless in terms of losing weight because uh, sitting all day counteracts cardiovascular exercise. And so then I got a standing desk and then all of a sudden I could lose weight and I obviously then dropped sugar. But for, to be able to do that in, the, in that, that moment when you're really stressed is really difficult unless we have these goals that we're setting over, week, uh, over a four week period. So your brain and your body is your business. It's, it's like something that you should um, have control over. And this is, the, this is the really the key, I believe, in uh, helping you get more confident so that you can then reach those goals that you're looking for. You can't change the past. You can't change what anything has happened to your brain in the past, but you can certainly change what happens today and tomorrow and the next day, like from this second. So all of my work is dedicated to my sister who passed away uh, 10 years ago. This is where she was in Brisbane in, in 1988. That's where I stopped going to open pharmacies in Queensland and became a neuroscientist. And I can tell you now that I never thought I'd be able to achieve what I've done over those period of, that period of time. I would have been voted the least person to become a professor. And what I'm giving you is sounds really simple, but it's 25 years of me studying the brain. I've worked with drug companies. I ran a lab that developed drugs, um, targeting mental health problems and all of these things. And brain plasticity and neuroscience is going to transform the world in terms of mental health. And this is just the beginning. And it is pioneering work and it is hard work because people can't possibly believe that's true. But this is the first step and I just challenge you to try and be as skeptical of a scientist as you possibly can be. I really beg you to do that because there's nothing like being a scientist. It's changed the world, it raises all boats and makes people live better lives. So thank you um, for being here today and coming and listening and I hope that you get some benefit. Change me in any way You don't own